So Luke chapter 5, if you'd like to open up your Bibles. I just love the Gospels. I love all of God's Word, but there's something wonderful about the Gospels in that while we're in other sections of the Word of God, in the Hebrew Scriptures or, or studying eventually in the New Testament when we get there, what we spend a lot of time doing as we're going through, especially the, the Hebrew Scriptures, is looking for Jesus and drawing parallels to Jesus and seeing Jesus as proclaimed in the entire Word of God. When you're in the Gospels, you don't have to do that. He's right there. It's just like spending time with Jesus. And we're going to do that tonight. Luke chapter 5 will be our starting point. We're going to get about halfway through Luke chapter 6. I'm going to have to save the rest for Sunday because it's just too much. But being with Jesus, I want to invite you to come be with Jesus. And to walk with Him. And to hear His voice. To hear His words spoken. To see what He does. Just to to bask in the presence of Jesus Christ. And that's what we get to do, especially when we open up these Gospel records, these witnesses, these testimonies of the life that He lived here on earth. And so I I love doing this. I want to begin with another verse. However, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which with, with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now Paul says several things that are attributes of a life worthy of the calling. He says you're going to be humble and gentle and patient and loving. Fruits of the Spirit, by the way. You're going to be diligent about unity in the body. You're going to be walking in peace. But the issue comes up from time to time, and I don't know if you've thought about this. I have. What does it really mean to live a life worthy of the calling? Wow. I'm not. I, I don't, what does that look like? How do we live lives worthy of the calling of Jesus? And Lord, I, I pray You'll give us a little insight into that tonight. Perhaps to show us more what it means to be people who are worthy of, of our calling. Because our calling, Lord, is remarkable. You've called us to be saved. You've called us to be sanctified. You've called us to be witnesses of the Gospel. You've called us to be bearing testimony in this world as to who Jesus is and, and who You are and what You've done. And Lord, that's overwhelming. So I ask that You would help us to see what it means. Maybe secure us a little bit more in this calling. And Lord, if there's anyone among us tonight who doesn't sense or know that they are called by Jesus, I pray that tonight they will hear Your calling, hear Your voice. But show us what it means, Father. Would You do that in Jesus' name as we pray these things? We ask Your Holy Spirit to bring insight and revelation beyond the words of man. Reach into our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight, we're going to bounce back and forth a bit between two closely related concepts. And the first one is the calling of Christ. But the second one, which is closely tied to it, is the credentials of Christ. The calling of Christ 
and the credentials of Christ, because that's what Luke does. In chapters 5 and 6, and actually he's going to end chapter 6 with the constitution of Christ, but again, we won't get there tonight. The calling and the credentials. So he begins with the calling, and he's going to go to the credentials, and then he's going to go back to the calling, and then he'll go to the credentials, and end up, I believe we end up with the calling one last time. But we see how the right of Jesus to call people to himself is reinforced by his credentials. First he calls, and then he shows why he has the right to call. And then he calls again, and Luke shows us again why he has the right to call in these credentials. Because by the credentials of Jesus, what we learn and what we see, and what I believe Luke set out to show in his Gospel, is Christ, the Messiah of Israel, and the Savior of the world. The one the Jews are looking for, and the one the Gentiles desperately need. So we begin tonight with calling. And I'll direct you when we go back and forth. But we start with calling. Luke chapter 5, verse 1, one of my favorite stories in all the Gospels. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret or Lake Canaris. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little way from land, and he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. So, welcome to the Sea of Galilee. Have a seat on the shoreline. Jesus is out there on a boat, sitting down, as was the custom of a rabbi when he was teaching. And he just begins to talk, and he begins to share, and the people are crowded around the shoreline. The Sea of Galilee, Lake Canaret today, it's what we call it. It, it, it means the harp. Canaret means the harp. And it's somewhat because of the shape of the lake itself. And we call it a lake because while you may have grown up hearing about the Sea of Galilee and the storms and the tempests on the Sea of Galilee, to see it with your own eyes, it's not so big. It's a good-sized lake. It's in a beautiful rural setting there in the lower Galilee of Israel. It's approximately 13 miles long by about 8 miles wide. That is the Sea of Galilee. A circumference of 33 miles all the way around. And it is Israel's largest freshwater lake. The water level ranges from 680 to 705 feet below sea level, making the Sea of Galilee the lowest freshwater lake in the entire world. It's interesting, they have the lowest lake and they have the lowest sea, the lowest, the Dead Sea, being that salt water, and it is the lowest place on earth. And so the Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake. The slope of the hills, and this is why it worked for Jesus to sit down in the boat and to teach. The slope of the hills, especially in the northwestern area around the Sea of Galilee, is such that it's like a great amphitheater. That whether you're standing on the beach or even a little off of shore speaking to the people, the volume just rises up and it's so easy to hear. It's remarkable. And so Jesus taught from this place. They're using Peter's boat for a pulpit. Jesus sits down and speaks to the people. Our rabbi taught the crowds. Now, one other thing, before we go further, we know Peter already knew Jesus before this happened. So this wasn't a cold call. This wasn't like he was standing on the beach and said, You there with the boat, can I jump in and do some teaching? Peter knew Jesus. Jesus knew Peter. We know back in John chapter 1, verse 41, that Peter's brother Andrew saw Jesus, heard Jesus. Andrew was actually following John the Baptist, but then he heard Jesus, took off after him, ran and got Peter and said, We have found the Messiah. 
Bible tells us in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, and Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, and the verses I believe are posted behind me, that Jesus had already called before Luke chapter 5, and the story about to unfold, Jesus had already called Peter, James, John, and Andrew. He'd already given them invitation to come and follow Him before He came to the teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum in the latter half of Luke chapter 4. Remember what happened there? He comes into that synagogue and He casts out a demon. And everybody's really excited and talking about it. And then He goes to brunch at Simon Peter's mother-in-law's home. Heals her of, of her fever. And so we know their relationship was already established. Peter, James, John... And Jesus, but as of Luke chapter 5, Peter, James, and John are not following Jesus. They've gone back to fishing. And isn't that typical of us? Oh yes, Lord, I'll follow you. I'm coming. Right there. You know? So they're back to fishing. And uh, what Peter doesn't realize is Jesus didn't come to fish. He came to recall Peter. Peter's about to be recalled. Okay, verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. (laughs) Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come to help them. And they came and they filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Luke's the only one who gives us this story. The specifics of Simon Peter's calling. And so in this calling, we're going to start to develop a list tonight. We're going to come back to it a few different times. But a list of aspects of being called to follow Jesus. Aspects of being called. What what does it look like? We begin with submission to authority. Submission to His authority. Remember, Peter, James, and John have been up fishing all night long with zero success. Now, I put myself in their wet sandals, and I think I would be exhausted. I would be weary. I would be not a little disappointed. My morning still had net cleaning, boat storage, and perhaps a bowl of tilapia stew at home waiting for me. And here comes Jesus wanting to push off from shore and teach. Well, that's okay. That's all right. I've I've heard him teach. He's a good teacher. And maybe we'll get some encouraging words here. But when Jesus says, hey, let's go fishing, you know, it's it's got to evoke in Peter that reaction of the professional fisherman when asked by the non-professional, never been fishing much guy, can we go out and do some fishing? And and so Peter gives the answer, hey, uh, we've been fishing and nothing's really working here. But note the submission to authority in Peter already at this point in his relationship with Jesus. The first word out of his mouth is Master. And Master is a word that only Luke uses. It's uh, in in the Greek. 
Epistatis. Is that right? No, that's not even close. Epistatis. Epistatis. I think that's closer. Any Greeks in here? Good. Epistatis. It means master or commander or it can even mean boss. But it is a word that signifies the one you're speaking to has a great authority over you, a greater, a higher position over you. And the more time Peter spent with Jesus, the more he accepted and submitted to the authority of Jesus. And it should be the same with everyone who's called. The more we're around Jesus, the more it's His authority that we seek. The more it's His authority that we accept, the more we bow down before Him and say, As you will, Lord, not as I will. And so Peter was that way. In fact, when we get over to Acts chapter 4, verse 13, you'll hear this, As they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish elite ruling class, and they probably sounded like the Duck Dynasty guys. <laughs> you know, the long beard. And, and they go, these guys, how can they know what they know? How can they have the kind of faith that they have? And they realized they had been with Jesus. That's what happens when you submit to His authority. He changes you. And the more you're around Him, the more you welcome His authority. There's another word, though, that Peter uses here. He says master, obviously a sign of authority. And then he uses a tiny little word in the Greek, and I can pronounce this one right off the bat, de. De is a contrastive conjunction. In other words, it's a little word that's used to contrast the latter part of a sentence with the former part of a sentence. You see the word there, it's but. Could be translated yet, however, nevertheless. Tiny little Greek word that says, I'm saying this, yet I'm going to do this. And I love this about Peter. Because he comes along and he says, Jesus, you're the master. And I'm giving you my professional opinion. As a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, the fish aren't biting. However, yet, but, I'm willing to oblige you, boss. It's your call. You want to go fishing? Let's go fishing. And my friends, that is the beginning of faith. Submission to authority is where faith starts. Because Peter submits to Jesus' authority without understanding. He submits to Jesus' authority. His opinion is appreciated, but not required. Fish aren't biting, but you want to fish. Let's go. We'll do it. I don't know why. It doesn't make sense to me. It certainly isn't within the parameters of my thinking. But you say to do so, Lord. Okay. The nets first fill up so fast that they start to rip. They start to pull these fish into the boats. The boats fill up so fast, they start to sink. First century fishing boats were roughly 30 feet long by 6 feet wide. So by our fishing boat standards in the Barren Sea, it's not any comparison, but... They're a good size. They're a decent size. You can fit up to 12 men in them tightly. Usually a couple or maybe three would be in a single boat doing the fishing. And they drag these, think think now, 30 feet by 6 feet, filled so filled with fish, they're sinking. Peter, James, and John, and Jesus now are in these boats. And by the way, just realize this. When Peter falls down before Jesus in verse 8, they're probably still in the boat. So Peter, with a face full of fish... They list to shore. They get on the shore. It's the catch of a lifetime. 
But for Peter, it's something else entirely. After submission to Jesus' authority, we see recognition of depravity. Peter suddenly comes face to face with the truth that he is not worthy to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Recognition of his depravity. Go away from me, Lord, verse 8, he says, for I am a sinful man. And so let's get this right out into the open. There's not a one of us here, nor has there ever been a person in history who was worthy of the calling. Not at first. He didn't call you because you were good. And He didn't call you because you made the right decision or because you chose the right path in life, unlike all those other losers who are not Christians. That's not how it works. He called you because you were a loser. He called you because you were sinking. He called you because you had nothing to offer. And He would give you everything that you need. Recognition of our depravity. It's not about wallowing around in our sin and going, oh, woe is me, I'm terrible. It's about recognizing that when I come to Jesus, I come to Jesus because He called me, not because I have something to put on the table. I don't call up the Lord. Notice that. We don't call Him. Yeah, Jesus, um, listen, I've been working on some investments I think you might be interested in. If you want to give me a call back, we'll talk. That's not how it works. He calls. We recognize that we are not worthy of that. Calling of Jesus. It's all about Him. It is not about me. And in verse 10, note this, Jesus' response to Peter is, do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. I understand the response, from now on you will be catching men. Why does Jesus say, do not fear? Perhaps because Peter is shaken in his sandals over this catch of fish. This was an impossibility. This was the largest catch of fish of Peter's entire life after a night of no catching any fish. The fish were not around. And yet, wow, amazing miracle. So perhaps he's shaking, but I think there's something else. I think it's the reason why Peter, James, and John are still fishing instead of following, and it's because they're scared of the call. Follow me! You don't know who you're talking to. Jesus. You want... Nah. Not me. Follow me, he says. Peter's mother-in-law is healed. Follow me, Peter. Ah, I'm afraid. You ever been afraid of the call of Jesus? I think it's fear of the call that keeps many Christians seated at church as opposed to doing ministry in the world. And no offense to anybody here, because I see a whole lot of ministry going on and a whole lot of people interested in bringing Jesus to other people's lives, but there's a certain fear factor if I speak the name, what might happen? If I really engage in following after Jesus, I'm too much of a sinner. I'm still working on the whole fact that I'm recognizing my depravity, Lord. I'm I'm too common. No one's going to want to hear from me. I'm too weak. I don't have a voice for these things. And Jesus says, do not fear. Do not fear. This is an invitation, number three, about the calling here, an invitation to Christ's capability. You're invited to His capability. Submitting to His authority, recognizing our depravity, but invited to His capability, not yours. And Peter would come to understand that. In his first letter, chapter 5, verse 1, Peter wrote, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He does it. So don't fear. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about what you're going to say. The word will be given to you at the right time. Don't worry about how you might look should you decide to really step up to the call of Christ on your life. Do not fear. He will give you everything that you need. As Chuck Smith used to say, where God guides, God provides. And it is absolutely true. This miraculous catch of fish was not to dazzle the crowd or impress Peter and the boys. It was not obviously to shame or embarrass them. Reality is that Jesus did it to reveal that the power of the catch is in the hands of Jesus. He has the power of the catch. So Peter, James, and John finally do let down their nets. And that's what faith does. Note this. Faith lets down the nets. Faith lets down the nets. Don't know what we're going to catch. Only God knows. But faith lets down the nets. We're going to do it because He asked us to. And it's interesting that in verse 11, when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Him. So they let down the nets again. They let them down when He told them to fish, and they let them down when He told them to follow. Let's go fishing. Let down the nets. Come, follow Me. Let down the nets. Stop whatever you're doing, no matter how important you think it is. By the way, even if it's ministry. Even if it's for the kingdom. This one has taken me years to get and I still struggle with it. When Jesus says, Rick, I want you to let down the nets and come follow me. But the nets are my ministry, Lord. The nets are my meetings and my contacts with people and the busyness of my schedule this week. And it's all for the kingdom, Lord. And He says, Rick, I want you to drop the nets. Well, I've got all kinds of faith to let down the net out in the sea and see what kind of fish we catch, but to let down the nets on the shore and just leave them there? But if I do that, how's all this stuff going to get done? It takes faith, but He calls us to let down the nets. And the boys do. I love that phrase. They left everything. Boats, nets, fish. And followed Him. They just followed Jesus. Now, we set aside calling for a moment or two, and we come back to two stories that we've studied twice before. We saw these stories in Matthew, we saw these stories in Mark, the story of the leper that Jesus heals, and the story of the paralytic. The question I want you to consider tonight is why? Why are these two stories related by all three of what they call the synoptic Gospels, because they're Gospels contain a synopsis of Jesus' life. So you've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and these three go together very, very closely. Why these two stories repeated by all three Gospel writers? And this brings us from calling to credentials. Credentials. Verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can Make me clean. He doesn't say, Lord, if you can do something about it. He says, Lord, if you're willing. So the leper absolutely believes that Jesus can do it. He just is imploring. He's just begging his willingness to do so. And he stretched out his hand and touched him. And we've pointed this out before. You know this. He touched him before he healed him. Jesus became unclean before he cleansed the leper. Jesus connected, had contact with this foul, vile disease, which, by the way, is not the same leprosy that we have out today. The leprosy of today is curable. 
for the most part. The leprosy in Jesus' day was not highly infectious. And Jesus touched the leper and said, I am willing, (laughs) be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he ordered him to tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now you Bible students know the Levitical law required that an offering be given when a person was healed of leprosy. Leviticus chapter 14, the first about 14 verses in that chapter, detail what the leper is to do. A leper who has now been healed of his leprosy, completely cleansed, has to make an offering at the temple to the priest. The law is on the books, but it was completely superfluous. Never once used until this moment. 1,500 years, rabbis and scribes and scholars would read Leviticus 14 and say, Why? It all applies to a man who's been healed of his leprosy, and we've never seen anything like that. And in fact, Jesus pointed that out. You may recall when he was in the synagogue at Nazareth ticking them off, he mentioned Naaman the Syrian. And he talks about the story of this in 2 Kings chapter 5. And Jesus said back in Luke 4.27, there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. The Gentile, he was cleansed. But note this, Naaman being a Gentile was not bound by the law and so would not follow Leviticus 14. Doesn't have to do it. He's not a Jew. Has nothing to do with him. So the law doesn't apply to him. And year after year, after decade, after century, after millennium, 1,500 years, this law was pointless, useless. Until now. Which reminds me that there's not a single thing in the Word of God that is there by accident. Everything, every word that God speaks has a reason for being there whether or not we get it. Like dropping the fish, the the net to get the fish. We may not know why we're told to do it, but He says do it. Let's trust Him because He always bears out His case. And so in this case, Jesus tells him, I want you to do what it says in the law. I want you to do Leviticus 14. And so this leper heads off to the temple to do what he's told to do. And by the way, after this, dozens of lepers are going to start showing up at the temple. Healed lepers. Cleansed lepers. Bringing their offering. Hey, I had leprosy for 25 years, but I'm healed now. I think I'm supposed to bring this offering. Can you imagine what the priests are doing now? Didn't we just have one last week? Five last week. Are you kidding me? They keep coming from everywhere. It's like Leviticus 14 all over the place. The credentials of Christ. Proven through healed lepers as Jesus is touching them. And the point is that God be glorified and the temple priest be shown to their very face something's happening here. It's all coming back to the same guy, this Jesus of Nazareth, Revealing the credentials of the Christ. Verse 15. But the news about Him was spreading even farther. And large crowds were gathering to hear Him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus Himself would often note this, slip away to the wilderness and pray. If there was a back door on Peter's mother-in-law's house, Jesus knew it well. If there was a side route out of Capernaum, Jesus knew it. If there was a little pathway, and we've, some of us have walked that pathway, the Arbel Pass. 
The Arbel Pass goes directly out of the lower Galilee and heads back out into the wilderness. And it's a beautiful little path. And we know Jesus walked it many, many times. I love the language Luke uses here. Jesus would just slip away. You ever just want to do that in the middle of the day? Karen, maybe you're in the middle of a class and you go, I'd just right now love to slip away and go pray because the kids are driving me nuts. I don't, I, they wouldn't drive you nuts as much as they would me. But to slip away and just go pray, it reminds me that, that the demands and the busyness of life led Jesus toward prayer and not away from it. When it got to be so much that Jesus in His humanity felt overwhelmed, He slipped away. The crowds would ratchet up their desire for healing. And by the way, with that, the opportunity for celebrity, for fame and for glory. And every time it started to rise, Jesus got out of there. Jesus took off. Jesus slipped away. He withdrew. For Jesus, it was never about the power. It was never about the phenomenal. It was never about the presentation. It was always about the personal. And that time spent with His Father is precious to the Lord. And a precious example for us. We've got to remember this, folks. It is so easy to get busy with life. And as I said before, to think what we're doing is so important, even to the cause of the kingdom. And we're working hard and we're putting it all out there. And as Russ read Sunday morning, Paul said in Philippians, or 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 16, three things. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's another hint to the behavior of the called. Rejoicing, praying, thanking. All the time. The credentials of Christ were therefore not carefully calibrated for a political campaign. They were genuinely His nature. He slipped away to pray and be with His Father because that's who He was. That's who He is. That's what mattered to Jesus. We're going on in verse 17. One day He was teaching. And there were some Pharisees and the teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was present for Him to perform healing. And Luke likes this word. The power. Dunamis in the Greek. The word dunamis he uses often. It means virtue, strength, might. And I like that word virtue too. The power, the virtue of the Lord. The virtue of the Lord which is capable of all healing. The virtue of the Lord that can raise the dead. The virtue of the Lord, the might of God was present there, Luke says, for Jesus and He's healing people. Luke uses the word again in Luke 6.19. All the people were trying to touch Him for power, dunamis, was coming from Him and healing them all. Luke 8.46 Jesus said, Someone touched me. And Peter said, Are you kidding me? Everybody's touching you. And He goes, No, no, no. I felt power go out from me. Someone touched me in faith. Someone touched me to be healed. We'll see that story when we get to Luke chapter 8. But this power is part of the virtue of Jesus Christ. And it's the same word that Jesus uses in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 for those who follow Him. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be My witnesses. 
And I point that out not to give you a thrill and say, whoo you can have the power. I point it out to say that whether it's catching fish or cleansing lepers or helping a lame man to walk, as we'll see, that the power belongs to Jesus. That if you function in any power gifting in this world, don't ever forget it is Jesus' power and not yours. It's not your claim to fame. It's the virtue of Jesus' name. Verse 18. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus always goes to the heart of the problem first. He always starts with the most important issue. Your sins are forgiven you. Verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right. (laughs) But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins have been forgiven you, or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, gang, that's credentials, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And all were struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. Story of the paralytic healed. And we have seen this story, and many take this story to preach about the faith of the roof wreckers. You know, look at the faith that they had, and they did have faith, absolutely. Some like to preach this story to talk about the connection between sin and paralysis. And that's a good sermon right there. You know, that sin paralyzes us, sin makes us lame. Sin is just a lame thing. (laughs) But I think there's more to this story. The story verifies again the credentials of Jesus as the Christ. So now you've got this cleansed leper showing up at the temple as a testimony. And here you have the leaping lame man who is proof of the prophecy. More credentials of Jesus. Isaiah 35 verse 6, as we read on Sunday, the lame will leap like the deer. How can the lame leap but they be healed? And here comes Jesus doing what Isaiah prophesied would happen. And by the way, While healing of a lame man was prophetic proof of the credentials of Christ back then, it yet remains a picture of the kingdom to come. Because Micah, chapter 4, verse 6, In that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts. Well, he's done it here tonight. No offense. I'm going to assemble the lame and the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. And it just thrills me that that's who the Lord calls. Lame people. Outcasts. People that the world looks at and says, you don't really have any value here. We're going to choose someone else. And God goes, oh, I want him on my team. I choose her. I pick them. 
And so he calls these who are lame. The devil tosses out the lame. The devil is big on eugenics and evolution and survival of the fittest. And Jesus says, no, no, no. No, I'm all about the survival of the outcast. And I'm about bringing in the lame under my authority. And that's what Jesus did. And so from credentials, now we're going to move back to calling. Verse 27. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. He left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And that is a big deal. The the IRS man left everything behind. (laughs) The tax collector, while being an outcast himself in the Jewish community, often tax collectors being excommunicated from their faith, they were among the richest people in Israel. Because Rome said, here's the amount of taxes we want you to collect, and the tax collector could make his salary on top of that. So he could expand the taxes to be as much as he wanted to ask for. Rome didn't care as long as they got their fair share. As long as they got what they were looking for, he could just build it up. And so tax collectors were notorious for extortion. Notorious for ripping the people off. And the people hated them, but they had a lot of money. They built it up on the backs of the people. And yet this Matthew, quote, left everything behind and followed him. So we've mentioned a few aspects of calling, submission to authority, recognition of depravity, an invitation to his capability. Here's another one to add. Separation from old activity. Separation from old activity. Matthew left it all. The tax booth, the professional life, the riches. Just as Jesus will say in Luke 9.62, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. This calling is not about going back. It's not about looking back. It is about leaving behind, separating yourself from who you were and what you did to do what He's calling you to do forward and from now on. And keep that in mind because Jesus is going to explain it a little better. With new cloth and old cloth and new wine and old wineskins, He's going to get into that in just a minute because the Pharisees aren't getting it. But verse 29 tells us, here's the next thing Matthew, Levi does. Matthew and Levi are the same guy. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. For a guy who's just left everything behind, he sure doesn't seem to miss it. He throws a big party for Jesus. Here's another one for the list. Not only separation from old activity, but immediately with Levi we see celebration of liberty. The celebration of liberty. I'm free. I'm not bound by this stuff anymore. I've been called to follow Jesus. And I'm throwing a party. It was party time at Levi's house. Let's be clear about this. The called are free people. The called are free. When you accept the gospel call of Christ, all things that you previously held on to are counted, as Paul said, as loss. Philippians 3.7 Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing else matters, Paul says. 
Levi, Matthew recognize nothing else mattered. Peter, James, John, they're getting it. Nothing else matters. And for the called, it's all about a celebration now of liberty. And Levi invites everybody he knows to meet Jesus. Oh, that we would do the same. And I think about Levi's excitement to throw this gathering, this celebration in honor of Jesus and bring all his friends in. Compare the party at Levi's house to the golf clap at a baptism. (laughs) You know the soft little clap? I think about that sometimes. Someone comes up out of the water of baptism and occasionally we'll have a younger person go, Woohoo! And everybody else is like, That's great. Look at my wrist. It's time to go. You know? Look at my wrist because I'm not wearing a watch. See, that's why that was supposed to be funny. (laughs) Right over everybody's heads. The contrast when we know that we are free in Christ and the jubilation and the celebration and the wonder of that, I just think we need to be reminded of that from time to time. This is a joyful life, gang. We are not bound by anything. I was reading about bitcoins today, Glenn. I was looking at that, and and people are, you know, bitcoins online. It's online money, and right now they run eight hundred bucks for a bitcoin. And you can use it as currency online. Overstock.com now takes bitcoins. So if you and people are starting to buy into this because they're thinking, hey, the dollar's going down the toilet. Gold's not doing very well. Might as well buy. Data. (laughs) What is it? It's not even real. It's imaginary. Bitcoins. And people are buying it up right and left. And they're excited about these Bitcoins. And I don't even know why I brought it up. What was I thinking? Oh, just that people are worried. What's driving Bitcoins right now is people are worried that they've got to have some substance with which to buy and sell things. Eventually it'll just be a mark. We're free of that. We don't have to worry about that. It doesn't mean we're foolish or bad stewards. It just means I'm not bound by the things of this earth. I have liberty. Let's celebrate that truth. Verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling. See, that's the contrast. Those who are called are celebrating and those who are religious are grumbling. It's always that way. They began grumbling at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and the sinners? And I just have one question. Who invited the pharisaical party poopers anyway? (laughs) How'd these guys get in the door? Bunch of wet blankets? Come on! It's a celebration. And they're like, how come they're eating with these people? Do you know who these people are? It's more tax collectors and sinners here. Unbelievable. Verse 31, Jesus answered and said to them, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And I think, I'm guessing here, but I think when he said the word sick, he was looking right at the Pharisees as if to imply, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There it is again. I didn't call to come, per- I didn't come to call perfect people. I came to call the sinners who need to be called. And Jesus, note this, does not only define who need Him, those who need Him, but those who will come to Him. You get the difference? There are those who start to realize they need Him. These are those who will come to Him. 
Because Jesus' invitation is for all people. Why do some come and some don't? Because those who do recognize their need. They know they're sinners. There's no bones about it. I'm a sinner. I'm depraved. I need Jesus. And that's the person who will go running to be in His presence. Who hear His voice and that's what they want to hear. Those who know that they need Him so desperately. Remember Peter's recognition of depravity. You don't, you don't come to Jesus for self-improvement. You come to Jesus for salvation. You don't come to Jesus to be just a little better than you are. You come to Jesus because you're so bad there's nowhere else to go. And He alone, as we sang earlier, can save. Well, the Pharisees quickly changed the subject. Verse 33, They said to Him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees do the same. (laughs) Our disciples. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus... Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Apparently, the Pharisees thought Jesus and His followers were having too much fun. These guys are too happy. They're eating, they're drinking, they're celebrating. And by the way, the Pharisees' comments should tell us something about the demeanor of Jesus and His apostles. These guys like to have fun. These guys could share a good joke. These guys knew how to celebrate and laugh and share all the joy. Christ's people are that way. Where Jesus is, there should be, note this, number six in the list of the called, there should be a demonstration of festivity. A demonstration of festivity. And the example Jesus uses here is the joy of the Jewish wedding feast. You know, the old rabbis said the most, during the week-long feast, that joy is the law. That there should be no rule or law given that could take away from joy in the time of the Jewish wedding. They love to dance. They love to sing. They love to pass around the wine. They love to celebrate. The Jewish wedding is the single most celebratory thing in Jewish cultural life. And Jesus says, that's what's going on. You're not going to be all bummed out when the bridegroom's here. You're not going to be fasting. You're not going to be sitting around in sackcloth and ashes dropping dust on your head when the bridegroom's here. Now that day will come. And when that day comes, they will fast. But that is not today. That's why I believe John, seeing the multitudes in heaven, had to write this down. Revelation 19.7, the multitudes around the throne crying out, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It's wedding time! It's time for celebrating! But you might say, yeah, but Jesus does warn about the day of fasting. When is that? When are the days when the bridegroom is taken from them and in those days they will fast? What days are those? There are churches who believe we are in those days. That these are the days 
of fasting. Wouldn't that be a great song? These are the days of our fasting. (laughs) Declaring depression, no joy. (laughs) And people think that. Well, Jesus said the days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them. Understand, these are not the days of fasting. This is the year of His favor. This is the time of salvation. These are the days of grace. And by the way, the bridegroom has not been taken away from us. Now, understand, I'm talking, there's a difference between practical and positional fasting. Practical fasting, Christians fast. I recommend fasting. Fasting can clear your head. Fasting can help you focus on the Lord. Fasting is a way to to be really in touch with what the Lord is doing and to listen more clearly. Fasting is not a bad idea, practically speaking, but we are not positioned as those who fast in sorrow. In fact, if you listen to how Jesus describes the way we're supposed to fast, Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance, so they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, your head and shoulders, right? wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We are not supposed to be, we are not called to be grumpy for Jesus. We're called to be joyful people. Where Jesus is present, there is joy. John 15.11, He said, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. John 16.24, Until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. John 17.13, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, Now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. And I can guarantee you this, there is no joy like the joy of Jesus Christ. We're the bride. But our bridegroom has not been taken from us. He has given to us His Spirit. Matthew 28.20, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. But the Pharisees' favorite song was, Give me that old-time religion. So, verse 36... He's also telling them a parable. He's trying to explain it. Get it through their thick noggins. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old, wishes for new. He says, the old's good enough. And that word enough is not there, but it is implied. The old's fine. I don't need anything else. And Jesus is drawing a distinction between the old and the new. Between the old covenant and the new law. And you don't patch up the old with the new. By the way, it's interesting. He says, you don't want to tear the old wineskins. You don't want to rip them up. You don't want to throw them out. You don't want to make them useless. Why? Because the Jewish people are still in play. And because the old covenant...
still has a value as far as the Lord is concerned. And God still has a plan for Israel. So we're not going to throw out the old wineskins. They're important. We're not going to worry about the old garment. We're going to have the new and we have the old and God is working on both. But interestingly here, what Jesus is doing is pointing out the incompatibility of the law and grace. You can't patch up the law with grace and you can't put the law onto grace. He didn't come to patch up the old system. And by the way, Jesus didn't come into your life to plug up the holes of your old life so you could limp along just a little bit better. We don't go to Jesus like we go to the doctor to get knee replacement surgery. You know, this will last you a little while. You know, it's like LASIK surgery. Some of you know I got LASIK surgery when I turned 40. I can't even see you guys tonight. (laughs) Ten years, bye-bye! You know, that's not Jesus. He doesn't patch us up. He makes us new. He, He doesn't do the old thing and do a little renovation. The law was given through Moses, John 1.17. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. You know what you need to hold the new wine of Jesus' grace? You need a new heart. It's called being born again. And that's what happens. When we're born again, we are born to a completely new self. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. The new things have come. We are not patching up the old. Revelation 21.5 The Lord says, Behold, I am making all things new. No wonder there's such a demonstration of festivity in the life of the called. Well, back to some credentials. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath. And his disciples were picking the heads of grain and rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. And that's what you would do when you traveled. That was fast food in the days of Jesus. Okay, You just grab some grain, rub it, eat it. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now you need to understand, there was nothing wrong with what they were doing. You're allowed to do that, to, to grab grain out of a field as you're passing through, rub it and eat it. Deuteronomy 23.25 When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. God provided that when His people traveled, when they were moving around, they could get food anywhere. So you could go through someone's field, bare hands, you couldn't take a sickle and start chopping it down to make money, but you could have some to eat. No problem. The problem is not with the plucking. The problem was with the day on which they were doing it, which was Shabbat. How can you do this? The Pharisees ask. And the rabbinical to-do and to-don't list on the Sabbath is absolutely legendary. I always like talking about this because every time I get to give you a different example of the ridiculousness of sabbatical laws. Of laws for the Sabbath day. Ultra-Orthodox Jews don't make phone calls on the Sabbath. You know why? Because to do so would break an electric current and that violates the law. I kid you not. I was reading that today and I went, what about cell phones? Are they okay? And I googled that. You're not going to believe this. From JewishJournal.com, a recent ruling in Israel permits religious Jews to use cell phones on the Sabbath. Provided they're using phones rigged not to accidentally power down, 
and provided they punch the keys with their teeth. (laughs) Who comes up with this stuff? Many of the ultra-Orthodox volunteers and workers at Israel's Magen David Adam Emergency Services work on the Sabbath and were confronted with the dilemma of how to activate their mobile phones without violating religious rules, according to ynetnews.com. Recently, the agency began replacing workers' paging systems with modern mobile phones that are equipped with GPS technology so that workers can be located and volunteers closer to the scene of an accident can get there faster, shortening response time. And that's all good. MDA, that is uh, Magen David Adam, asked the Scientific Technology Halakha Institute to come up with a solution for phone calls on the Sabbath. What do we do if we get an emergency response call on the cell phone on the Sabbath? What do I do about that? Rabbi Levi Yishtak Halperin issued a new set of rules involving the use of a specially designed case that prevents phones from being shut down accidentally. To confirm response to dispatch, workers are permitted to hold a small metal pin between their teeth and press the necessary buttons on the phone. And this is a Sabbath law today. 2,000 years later, it just gets more and more ridiculous. And I don't, honestly, I don't mean to, to even be offensive or anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic sounding here at all. I have great respect for Israel and the Jewish people. But what I do want you to see and understand is that's what religion does. That is always where religion goes. There's got to be one more rule. Because all of the rules that we have don't quite cover it. So we need another one. Well, what about this situation? We'll come up with a rule for that. What about this situation? Another rule. And it's rule upon rule upon rule until it's so heavy it crushes you. And that's religion. Jesus comes along preaching grace. The Pharisees still had were plenteous in their Sabbath rules in those days, they saw four major grain field violations going on all at once here. Reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food. All at the same time, you guys are violating law. Verse 3, And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the showbread... That is the consecrated bread that went on the table of showbread in the holy place. He took that. Which is not lawful for any to eat except the priest alone. And he gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now understand, two quick principles here. First of all, human need trumps religious ritual. That's what Jesus is saying with the story of David. David was starving. He was in need. He was on the run from Saul. By the way, in that story, Saul was seeking David's life and he took off running and he ends up at the priests of Nob where the tabernacle was at that time and goes in and says, we're starving to death, me and my men, and we're on a, we're on a journey from the king. He kind of fibs a little bit. And so the priests give him the showbread that's all the food that they have there. And Jesus puts his stamp of approval on that says that's okay why it's holy bread yeah but they were hungry and the need is more important and the care for the human is more important than keeping that rule which was set actually to help you in your need it's kind of the whole point of the sabbath was to help you out 
give you some rest, give you a break. It wasn't to make life harder for you. G. Campbell Morgan said, Any application of the Sabbath law which operates to the detriment of man is out of harmony with God's purpose. So please understand that about Sabbath. If we are keeping Sabbath so that it makes us more righteous and more holy and it becomes a burden to us, that's out of law. That's out of bounds. That is not God's intention. Jesus will say in another place, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God didn't create you so that you could be little automatons keeping this religiously. That gets heavy. That's a weight. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, the prophet records the Lord saying, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now understand when he said that in Israel, (laughs) burnt offerings and sacrifice were the deal. This is what you do if you're holy. This is what the righteous people do. You offer sacrifice. And God says, rather you be loyal. You, You bring your offerings, your burnt offerings. I'd rather you know me. That's more important to me. And God said this into, spoke that into the religious system of Israel. You're missing the point, gang. It's not religion. It's relationship. David cries this out, Psalm 51.16. You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And Jesus then caps this whole thing by claiming, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So not only is there the principle here that human need is higher than the law, but the principle is, Jesus says, I have the authority to tell you what you can and can't do. And I'm telling you, that if they want to have some grape nuts on the Sabbath, it's okay. It's fine. This is not a problem. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The words, get this, I'm the one who gave you the Sabbath. You want to talk about credentials? I'm the one who established this law, and I say it's okay. Show me a rabbi with that kind of authority. Jesus asserts His divine authority over the single most important day of observance in Jewish life. He says, that's my day, I gave it, and I'll tell you how it's to be celebrated and kept. And it's not to be kept religiously. And in support of this, Luke offers up now a story of more credentials. Verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. Scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so they might find reason to accuse him. Unbelievable. You know what that means? That means they knew he could heal. And they were watching to see if he'd do it on the Sabbath. How, what kind of disbelief would you have to have? To know this man had the power of God, but you're waiting for him to step out of line so you can get him. (laughs) But he knew what they were thinking, and he said, verse 8, to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or destroy it? 
And after looking around at them all, and by the way, either Matthew or Mark, I think it was Matthew, adds that he looked around at them in anger. He is angry at their lack of compassion. He is angry at their religiosity with the Sabbath. He's angry about this. He looks around and he said to him, to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And he did so. Hmm. By the way, that's really cool. He did it. That's faith. The man with the withered hand shows a little bit of faith there. Because this withered hand normally wasn't going anywhere. Stretch out your hand. The man had to do it. And it was healed. And so he acts in faith based on the word of Christ Jesus. His hand was restored, verse 11, but they themselves, that is the Pharisees, were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. How can we put this guy down? And they're watching to see if He heals a guy on the Sabbath. Incredible. So you might wonder, does Jesus play into their hand? (laughs) No pun intended. (laughs) Quite the contrary. What Jesus does is not just claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath, He demonstrates it. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, how do we know that? I'll show you. I'll heal on the Sabbath. I'll do what no man can do on the Sabbath. I will exert my power on the Sabbath that you might know my authority over the Sabbath. And the point is here, Jesus is validating His credentials. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. By the way, if you are withering under the strain of life, if you're feeling like you can't barely get from one day to the next, understand this principle. He's the Lord of rest. And that's the point of the Sabbath. That's the point of the seventh day of creation. Rest. That's the point of the Sabbath being given among the Ten Commandments. Rest. That's what the Hebrew writer says is let's be diligent to enter into rest. Because that's what grace brings. That's what Jesus is all about is rest. Now before we stop tonight, one more swing back to calling. For in five brief verses, we see the calling of the twelve. Verse 12, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. When day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, who were brothers, and probably Jesus' cousins, and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. As we already saw, Luke tells us Jesus would slip away to pray. And this becomes very much a habit of Jesus throughout His ministry, and we see it a lot in Luke. But in this case, He didn't just slip away early in the morning to pray, He slipped away and pulled an all-nighter. He's up praying all night long. Why? Because this is arguably the most important decision that Jesus will make prior to Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, He will make the decision to go on the cross. He will accept 
God's ruling, God's judgment on that matter. But in this case, he's got to decide who the guys are going to be. Who are my twelve? Who will be not only good disciples, but good apostles? The difference in the word disciples or followers, apostles are those who are sent. They're ambassadors. And you might say, well... He spent the night in prayer. I mean, I would do that. I guess, you know, if I realized something was really important, I might really entrust an evening or a night to prayer. But why Jesus? Why not use His divine wisdom and just pick the right guys instead of losing a night's sleep? Well, first of all, Jesus never saw praying to the Father as a loss. Better to be all night with the Lord than have a full night's sleep. And like every other challenge that Jesus ever confronted, He faced it as a man. We need to not miss that. He could have relied on divine wisdom. Well, actually, He did rely on divine wisdom, didn't He? He went to the Father. He did it just like you can do it. Just like I'm called to do it. He goes to the Father. He spends the night in prayer. And I wonder that night how many hours He spent in prayer for Judas. You see, that wasn't an accident. Boy, I knew it was going to be one of the guys. I just had no idea it would be him. I absolutely believe Judas was selected as the betrayer. Was chosen for that role. Well, that's not fair. He could have rejected it. All the way up to the very end, John chapter 13, read the story. Jesus is offering the morsel to Judas, which was a way of saying, you are my closest friend. Judas, will you be my friend? You don't have to do this. This is your last chance. Please, don't. And Judas, of course, made the choice. But I believe that Jesus prayed, made the selection of Judas, and it probably was heartbreaking. But note this in verse 13. When day came, He called His disciples to Him and chose them. Called them Apostles, apostolos, one that is sent forth. But note this, before He sends them forth, He calls them to Himself. Before they could really legitimately be apostles, even before they go out on their training mission, (laughs) He says, I want you to come and walk with Me. I want you to spend some time with Me. In Mark's take of the choosing of the twelve, Mark says, Chapter 3, verse 13, He went up on the mountain and summoned those whom He Himself wanted. And they came to Him. And He appointed twelve for three reasons, Mark says. The third reason is to have authority to cast out demons. The second reason is so that He could send them out to preach. But the first reason given is so that they would be with Him. He called them to be with Him. And I would call this number seven, and you might want to jot this down, and I may need to spell it. I would call this the revelation of proclivity. As an aspect of the call, the revelation of proclivity. What do you mean? The word proclivity literally means to slope forward. As in a person's inclination, your proclivity to a certain kind of music, or your proclivity to a certain kind of food perhaps. And what Jesus calls out here is the revelation of proclivity. We see Jesus leaning, those who He Himself wanted, but we also see that He calls them and says, I want your proclivity as a called follower of Mine 
to be me. I want you first and foremost to be with me. I'm going to send you out. You're going to have ministry. You're going to have mission. But it's got to start and end with me. And it's got to be including me. And it's got to be about me, Jesus would say. And this was challenging to me because over the last few days I've been asking, Lord, is that my proclivity? Is Jesus, and just being with Him, is that my first proclivity? Is that the first thing I want to do when I wake? Is that the last thing I'm thinking about when I go to bed? Is that what taps on my heart all throughout the day? Or is it getting my life done? I don't know about you, but I have an awful lot of days that are spent getting the day done. And Jesus says, why don't you just come away? Why don't you slip away and be with me? And don't worry about all the rest. I'm going to send you. I'm going to call you. You're going to go. You're going to minister. It's going to be great. But why don't you just come and spend some time with me? And so maybe when Paul says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, maybe the picture is a little clearer when you realize that your calling is first and foremost to Jesus. Amen? That's what he wants. No disciple is worthy of the calling unless that calling is first to be with him. The mission is never greater than the Master. The calling is never greater than the Christ who calls. And Jesus, we hear you. We hear you calling us to yourself. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder. Thank you, Lord, for the gentle sound of your voice saying, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Father, I pray this. I need this in my life, and I pray this over the lives of my brothers and sisters. We together tonight ask that we might simply be called to you. And we declare tonight that we respond to that. We want to be with you. We want to be with you, Lord, when you call us home to heaven. One day, hopefully soon. But we want to be with you right now. So call us out of the din and the noisiness and the busyness of life just to be with you. And may the rest of our lives, Father, flow from that place. In the most precious name of Jesus, we pray tonight. Amen.